Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we have an in-depth interview with the CEO and co-founder of a startup that's developing a quantum computer based on Schrodinger's cat qubits. And the company has a fantastic name as well. So stay tuned for that fascinating conversation. But first, physicists are playing important roles in developing many of the technologies that are greening the economy. However, a recent poll by the Institute of Physics reveals that more than 80% of its members are not confident that the UK will reach its target of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. That depressing statistic was revealed in a recent report from the IOP about physics and the green economy. The report says that we stand at a crossroads regarding climate change and that more support is needed to tackle what the IOP calls the defining challenge of our time. The writing of the report was coordinated by Martin Freer, who is a nuclear physicist at the University of Birmingham. Here he is in conversation with Physics World's Michael Banks. Well, hi, Martin, and thanks for joining us on the Physics World podcast. So the Institute of Physics has just released a report, Physics Powering the Green Economy, um, that you steered the activity on. And the report examines the role that physics and physicists can play in reaching or helping to reach the UK uh, government to meet its net zero targets by uh, 2050. Now, the report, one of the main kind of conclusions of the report itself is that we seem to be at this kind of crossroads at the moment when it comes to hitting that particular net zero target. I wonder if you could just explain briefly what to listeners what net zero is and also why we are at that particular stage. Right. And you've started with the hardest question, I think. <laughs> uh, so uh, net zero is really hard to say, but incredibly hard to deliver. Um, and the reason net zero is it's so extraordinarily hard to deliver is pretty much everything that we do generates carbon emissions, CO2 emissions. Uh, and even if you were to take uh, a piece of energy technology such as uh, a wind turbine, uh, in manufacturing that wind turbine, you've used uh, composites, you've used concrete, uh, you've used materials uh, and manufacturing processes which have created carbon. And so even though you might get low carbon electricity out of it, uh, you've already locked up some CO2 emissions in developing that technology. And to make that net zero, then you have to do something else on top of it. And that might be offsetting. So people talk about growing trees and things like that. Or it might be um, actually doing something which is a bit more proactive. And um, we have this process of direct air capture, sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. So um, that is net zero, is doing things without any... Uh, any real cost in terms of CO2 emissions. The reason that we are at um, a crossroads is that if one follows global temperatures, this year looks like it is going to be the hottest year on record since records began in, in 1850. 
Uh, and it was really worrying uh, in the sense that that would put us at already at the point of 1.5 degrees of global warming. And what we're trying to do is limit uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees. And so if we're already at that point, it tells us that we need to move even faster than we're moving at present. Right. And the report also, as you mentioned, some of those areas, uh, you know, the, the report kind of picks out five particular key kind of areas um, where research and development can help us potentially deliver those kind of targets, such as like nuclear, renewable energy, um, energy storage as well. And the report says that we need kind of a systems approach when it comes to scaling up these technologies. Can you kind of explain a little bit about what that is yeah, and, and a systems uh, is a is a word which hides many things, uh, and, and most of them we don't understand. Um, so uh, what we mean is, uh, you can think about an energy system, for example, and uh, just as we've been talking about, you can transition from the current energy system, which is heavily fossil fuel, to renewable generation, and as you do that. Uh, you might think that we just bung wind turbines on in term, instead of coal power stations. But then you need to think of the consequences of that. How do you then manage your energy system? So when the wind is not blowing, etc., you're going to think about where are we going to get our energy from in those times. So you need energy storage and you need different kinds of energy storage for different types of occasions. You Sometimes you need storage on a very short time scale, which batteries might be able to deal with, or actually, um, we will need uh, energy storage for much longer timescales. And it's getting really, uh, so we talked about electricity there, but it's getting really hard now as we think about decarbonisation transport. Much of what we do now relies on fossil fuels, transition to electric vehicles is going to put demands on grid. We need to think about how that is managed transition around heating. So most of our heating comes from burning gas, moving that onto electricity. That, that energy requirement is hugely variable for um, domestic heating. Uh, there's so many challenges in, in, in designing that energy system. And then there's other systems, which are finance systems. So we got uh, this has all got to work from a financial perspective. And we've got the markets and consumers and social um, communities, governance, all of these things are systems that one needs to think about and actually make sure that anything that is implemented works across all of these systems. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, uh, the market, you know, as a nuclear physicist yourself, you know, what do you what do you see as kind of the role of nuclear power potentially playing in, in helping us to deliver those kind of net zero targets? Um, and, and I think this isn't just not my view. This is uh, a, a, view, a view widely held and uh, indeed by those within UK government who are uh, shaping energy policy at the moment is that we are going to need quite a lot of baseload. Um, so baseload is that non-variable um, generation, which uh, if we're putting more of our energy systems, so heating and transport, we're going to need to increase the amount of baseload that we can cope with. Uh, and nuclear is great for that. So 
Uh, it steadily chugs away producing energy night and day, year after year, and actually decade after decade to build a nuclear power plant. These things usually operate for 50, 60 years pretty reliably. And so the estimates are that we're going to need um, something like 24 gigawatts of, of nuclear power. And that's um, just to be clear, that's just not going to be from the kinds of nuclear power stations that we're building at the moment, but there's opportunities for new types of nuclear power plants, so small modular reactors doing things like uh, not just producing electricity, but producing heat, industrial-grade heat, but also producing hydrogen if we are going to have a large component of hydrogen in our energy economy. So nuclear power can... Uh, be thought about how it might fit into the energy mix in, in a number of different ways. And there's also a fair amount of discussion in the report about nuclear fusion, um, you know, which might surprise some given that we you know we currently don't have fusion at the moment. It's something that may be of kind of a few, potentially a few decades away. Um, I mean, do you think that could play a role in, by the 2050s in terms of delivering electricity to the grid? So I, uh, I think the report is about physics in the green economy, and some of that will feed into... Uh, the um, UK target of getting to net zero by 2050. But actually, a lot of what physics does is generating new technologies which are going to have longer-term impact in our in our energy system. Just because we have a way of generating delivery delivering energy right now, innovation is happening constantly. And we need to think about how we design an energy system and design new ways of generating energy, which will um, fit in with that future uh, future energy system. I, I think it's, uh, I mean, the UK has got hugely ambitious plans around developing its own fusion power plant, power station. Really exciting to be part of that. That will generate a whole set of spin-out technologies. That my thinking is it's going to have uh, uh, an impact which lies um, in, in terms of its influence beyond uh, 2050 rather than being part of that net zero transition at 2050. And as part of the report, the IOP also it surveyed 500, over 500 physicists, um, which apparently 80, around 80% of which think that the on the current trends um, that the UK won't meet its net zero targets. Um, so what, what do you think kind of needs to change in order to kind of help bring that percentage down? Yeah, and I, and I think that is that number is really worrying, isn't it? That so many uh, physicists believe, um, well, you know, despite some good things happening around taking coal off uh, our energy generation, so electricity generation, that we are still way off, um, way off target. I mean, in part, that is also uh, driven, that thinking is driven by um, the fact that Climate Change Committee uh, also uh, are worried about how much progress we're making and, in fact, that some of the government policies which are being made, investing in new oil fields and things like that. Um, so... Uh, the, the signs uh, are pointing in the wrong direction. I think there needs to be greater ambition from government, greater investment into R&D, greater joining up between different departments in terms of their own policies and strategies to make sure that they're properly aligned with net zero. 
We do need, um, sadly, a, a, an industrial strategy which is fit for purpose uh, associated with net zero. So I, I think uh, there is a lot that at the governmental level which will push us. It's been great. There's some great things happened up to this point, but we need to be even more ambitious going back to the first 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 point of discussion, even more ambitious and even better aligned in terms of policy. Are you optimistic then that we will actually kind of reach these targets by 2050? Um, I need to be optimistic. I I think the the worst thing that we can do is go, well, we're never going to make it. Uh, The more that we can do, uh, the better it is going to be for our planet. So we need to um, press the accelerator uh, and, uh, and and clench our teeth uh, and drive uh, and drive uh, the transition uh, with with more vigor. Um, so every little bit and every big bit will help us uh, in terms of the future of the planet. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks for joining us to discuss this uh, important issue. Thanks, Martin. That was the nuclear physicist Martin Freer in conversation with Michael Banks. You can read more about the IOP report in a news article by Michael. You can find it on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Now is the Time for Action to Reach Net Zero Climate Targets, demands IOP report. And that article contains a link to the report on the IOP website. Quantum computers have the potential to revolutionize how we do some calculations in the future. Today, however, the technology is far from settled, and there are a number of different competing ways to make quantum bits or qubits. Recently, Physics World's Margaret Harris caught up with the CEO and co-founder of a company that says it takes a unique approach to qubit design that's very good at minimizing the effects of the errors that plague nascent quantum computers. Here is that conversation. glance, the power of a quantum computer might seem like just a numbers game. The more qubits you have, the more you can do with them, right? Well, as with so many other things in the quantum world, the answer is not a binary yes or no. It's kind of a superposition between them. And here to explain why fewer but better qubits could be a good thing is Theo Peronin, the chief executive of the quantum computing startup Alice and Bob, which is based in Paris, France. Hello, Theo. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me today. Now, listeners who are new to quantum technology may be a little bit puzzled by the name of your company. Perhaps you could start by explaining who Alice and Bob are in the context of the world of quantum computing. Sure. Um, So Alice and Bob are uh, sort of a private joke. They're the two placeholders character used in thought experiment or uh, textbook protocols to describe the point A and point B. Um, for us, we, we, we picked that name because uh, first we wanted to avoid the word quantum that is kind of polluted by pop culture to mean magical technology. There is absolutely nothing magical we're, we're doing here. We're actually trying to build one of the toughest machines to, to build out there. It's a, it's a well-defined uh, problem. 
just like a, a tough textbook one. So we, we like the textbook reference. How did Alice and Bob, the company, not the hypothetical people A and B, get started? Yeah, so we, my co-founder, Rafael Lescana, and myself started the company just before defending our PhDs, actually. Um, and at the time, we, we really felt there was a unique opportunity for building a, a company uh, around the idea that a universal full-tolerant quantum computer, really a, an ideal kind of quantum computer, was feasible, but it would take better design, better qubit. And this was exactly what we've been working during our PhD on, on uh, that novel kind of superconducting qubit called cat qubit. Uh, and I'm sure I'm going to tell you a bit more about that in a minute. Why are they, what are these qubits and why are they called cat qubits? Yeah, so... Um, Superconducting uh, qubits in general, um, sort of antennas, superconducting antennas on a chip cooled down in a uh, dilution refrigerator, so close to absolute zero at 10 millikelvin. And they operate in the gigahertz range. So actually we're handling photons, but microwave photons. Um, and, um, and you need something nonlinear to actually make a device that can compute, uh, just like your transistor in a classical computer is a nonlinear uh, element. And for superconducting qubits, it's Joseph-Lang junction, a small oxide layer between two superconductors. Now, the, the thing with cat qubit is that it's a new design, a new way to lay out uh, Joseph-Lang junction, inductance, capacitors. Um, and the idea is to encode quantum information in a superposed uh, state in a resonator, in a, in a yeah, in a harmonic oscillator, and those that superposition is what you actually define as a, a Schrödinger cat state. Uh, it's the superposition of two coherent state of opposite phases, um, and coherent state are somewhat of semi-classical state. It's what a laser or maser outputs or a microwave source outputs, um, and, and so the the, the cat qubit. Has this unique property that if you do a clever engineering, if you manage to uh, exchange photons by pairs with the environment, you can actually stabilize it. And this is the whole trick of what we're doing at Alice and Bob. Is that whereas all the other players are trying to isolate their quantum system as much as possible to to protect them from noise. What we're doing is that we're leveraging the environment, coupling as much as possible to the environment, but through a very controlled channel that can exchange energy, ex extract entropy from the device without extracting information, without creating decoherence in it. So yeah, it's, a, it's quite of an exotic uh, qubit out there. And what's, what's the advantages of doing things that way as opposed to a, a traditional superconducting qubit or another type of qubit? Now, the key thing is that because of that stabilization mechanism, because it's native, it's built in, it's sort of by design in the system, you can correct or, or be protected against errors natively. So actually, you, you cannot be protected against all errors. Um, in a quantum bit, you have two types of errors as opposed to, to only one in a classical bit. Um, just like a classical bit, you have a bit flips that switches zero into one and vice versa. But you also have a purely quantum error called the phase flip, which switches the phase of a superposition from zero plus one to zero minus one. Both errors are equally important in a quantum computer um, and equally, equally uh, likely. The, 
our mechanism of stabilization natively suppress one of those two errors, namely the bed flips. And by doing that, it actually simplifies dramatically the, the architecture of the overall uh, quantum computer. What we showed in a, in a recent paper is that if you wanted to, uh, let's say, break RSA um, by running short algorithm on a, on a large quantum computer, it would take actually 60 times fewer cat qubit than your usual uh, transport. So uh, don't worry, it's still a very large number. It's 300,000. And at the moment in the lab, we have just a handful. So, so you have time. Uh, but it's, uh, it's much more reasonable already than the 20 million purity required. So talk to me a little bit about why error correction is so important for the development of quantum computers. So you talk about you know, protecting against um, bit flip errors, not protecting against phase flip errors. You know, what, are the, what are the impacts of these different types of errors on, on trying to run a quantum computation? Well, the challenge when you build a quantum computer is that we live in a classical world, and it's very hard to escape from, a, from that classical world. Uh, basically, what you can think of devices or, or degrees of freedom in, in some system like the, the spin of a nuclei, for example, that are very well isolated from the rest of the world, but they're also very hard to control. And when you build a quantum computer, you, you, you want to solve a paradox. You want a system that you can control, program, input data, output result, so highly controllable, and yet completely decoupled uh, in terms of information leakage. You know, the Schrodinger cat box uh, for the experiment has to be completely sealed. Um, and, and matching those two is very difficult. In practice, what it means is that when you build a, a quantum computer, you end up suffering, struggling, and fighting against classical noise that creates decoherence uh, as information leaks out of your system. And, um, and, and today's machine basically do one error every 100 or 1,000 of operation per qubit, which might, be, might look good enough. But just to put that in perspective, it's um, about 20 orders of magnitude more than your classical uh, laptop uh, would do in terms of error per bit. So it's, it's a staggering amount of, um, of errors. Um, and if you want to do those meaningful, proven, speed-up algorithm um, with uh, just a handful of them, well, th you'd need to, to improve the, the quality of those gates, of those operations per qubit, by at least a billion-fold, or a, a good million-fold. Um, so, so, so you need to, to find something else than just looking for new material. You won't find a material that is a million times better at protecting your information. Good thing is there is codes. Um, we know how to, uh, uh, you know, do error correction in any classical telecommunication. I mean, 5G would not exist if it was not for error correcting codes. We just have to implement the same thing, but it in a slightly more complex way in the quantum world. Now, some some listeners may have heard about you know the distinction between a physical qubit, which is the actual device, and a logical qubit, which is somehow error correcting. Is is that something you you're dealing with, or as you've found a way around that that sort of dichotomy between physical and logical qubits? No, it's a, it's exactly that. We're in the business of building the first logical qubit worldwide, and actually. Um, I feel like, personally, the general public is not uh, aware of how profound, um, almost on a philosophical way, uh, this would be as a milestone. It's a single logical qubit is useless, per se. But um, it, it would mean that mankind would have built a machine, a device, which one of its degree of freedom 
is I is completely decoupled from the rest of the universe in terms of leakage. It's somewhat uh, akin to Sputnik, and uh, you know it just escaping gravity in some sense and beeping out there uselessly for for a couple of months or so. Um, and so at the moment, what the company, the team is working on is actually correcting the remaining errors on our devices. Um, the the face trip through a, a simple. Uh, repetition code, and, and we we aim we we're working toward that first logical qubit to be delivered next year, hopefully. And repetition code is that just sort sort of you know saying the same superposition multiple times, so that hopefully even if one gets disturbed, then the others will be fine. Is that how it works? Yeah, actually, when an error correcting code is uh, is something actually rather simple. It just you need to do several copies um, uh, of the same information. And the simplest code you can do is a uh, uh, classical code is a, is a majority vote. Uh, let's say you have three qubits, um, two agrees and one disagree, uh, then you, you're going to go for the two. Uh, and it's most likely that the two were right than the two were wrong. And as you increase, as you add more and more qubit, um, this, uh, this, I mean, being wrong is more and more unlikely. Uh, so this is the whole idea behind error correction. And this is why, for example, on the, uh, we, we talk about overhead. is how much redundancy you need in, in a machine to, to, to create, um, I mean, to, to run uh, a meaningful algorithm. So earlier when I said we need 60 times fewer qubits, it's actually not, uh, we, don't, we need the same amount of logical qubit. But to implement those logical qubits, we would require 60 times fewer physical ones. That concept of overhead is really interesting because it really gets at the, the sort of practicalities of building a, a quantum computer. Um, you know, how challenging is it to scale up uh, this, you know, um, the particular type of qubit you've chosen to use? You said you've got a few in your lab at the moment. You know, what's what's the barriers to making that into you know, 60,000 or, or whatever is needed to break RSA or do any of these other exciting things that quantum computers could do? Yeah, so... so- just to put orders of magnitude out there, um, you, you start having, uh, you start beating the best classical computer at around 50 uh, logical qubits. And you start doing meaningful things with a few hundreds up to a few thousand logical qubits. Um, but for, for the Schwarz algorithm I mentioned before, the order of magnitude would be about 10,000 logical qubits. Um, and, and that takes uh, hundreds of thousands of physical ones. So indeed, that would be a, a, a very large machine uh, with today's technology. Um, now, what are the barriers? Now, actually, today, y- you could print out thousands of qubits if you want. Uh, it, it would just be useless um, because um, because of the noise uh, on it. It's a, it's a, it would be a very poor classical computer, basically. Um, and, and so the, the challenge before scaling is making sure that you have a robust architecture, something that uh, is meaningful. Otherwise, you're just waiting engineering time. Um, that being said, uh, I think at the moment, the, the community, and it's championed by, by uh, IBM in that regard, uh, is in the few hundreds, uh, nearly a thousand um, qubit, uh, superconducting qubit on a single chip. Um, and, and you can start doing things very interesting um, by just 
adding another zero or so in that. And the, the type of qubit we're doing, because we're doing nothing fancy in terms of, uh, of, of materials or fabrication, the, the only things we do differently is the design, the layout, uh, the architecture of the chip. Uh, you could completely do a, a control F, find and replace uh, and put our qubits in place uh, instead of others. Um, so there is no strong barrier. Now, um, so some people might think, well, you need to work at very low temperatures. This is going to be challenging at scale. Actually, it's not. It scales somewhat favorably. Uh, the, the key challenge, which people are not aware of, is the control electronics. Is the fact that you, you need classical electronics to control your qubits. And actually, you need a lot of them and a lot of FPGA boards, which is very expensive. Um, and when you start running error correction, then you have a lot of real-time computation you need to run. And this is the, one of the key bottlenecks in, in scaling the, the machines. So is that one of the main reasons why you've suggested that you know, somehow fewer but better qubits might be the route to, um, to making these, this scale up and what quantum computers can do? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, when you think about it um, from a customer point of view, um, he's not interested in the number of physical qubits. What, what only matters to him is how many logical qubits, how fast are they? Um, and, and then if you think that actually the price tag uh, depends on the number of physical qubits and not logical ones, uh, then it's even from just an economic standpoint, it, it, it makes way more sense to, to go there. Now, we definitely have not completely solved the challenge. Uh, again, those numbers I mentioned before, with, uh, with the previous architecture, the 20 million you, um, qubit required to run sure, you would only have 0.03% of the qubit that actually computes the other correct virus. With our architecture, 60 times better, but still only what? barely 2%. Uh, so you still have a lot of room for improvements in the architecture. Okay. And, you know, in terms of getting to that, that point, you know, what are the key barriers to improving the system you've got now, which is a few qubits uh, with this error protection, to something that you could start to do, I don't know, molecular calculations? That's often seen as one of the early applications of uh, uh, a decent level uh, quantum computer. Yeah, the, um, so, so at the moment, the, the team is working on um, what we announced publicly a few months ago, a, a four-cat uh, qubit device to, to, to demonstrate the building block of our logical qubit. Then we'll release a 14 one, uh, we'll tape out at the end of the year, uh, and we, it should be calibrated and up and running as a logical qubit during next year. Um, and, uh, and then once you have done that, you're not completely out of the wood yet. Um, what you need to demonstrate is actually you need to demonstrate that you can find a way around a math no-go theorem. Uh, the so-called Easton-Neal theorem uh, says that uh, with the kind of connectivity that we have on, a, on our machines, you cannot do a universal set of gates compatible with your error correction scheme. Good thing is there are solutions um, called magic state factories uh, for people who know it's better, which is just another layer of overhead. But this is why you, you, you still have a, a handful uh, of milestone, of profound milestone to, to, that remains to be demonstrated after the first logical qubit. And this is what we're planning to, to do with our 40 um, cat qubit devices 
by 2026. Uh, and then so you, you demonstrated all the hypotheses of the architecture, and then you need to scale to a few thousand um, to, to start doing meaningful things. And is that going to be mainly mainly an engineering challenge, or is there, is there still some interesting physics to be worked out in terms of how to connect those qubits and how to keep them stable? The, the, what, what's really exciting with uh, the race for quantum computers is that there are challenges for every aspect of science. Um, and, and so you have some very fundamental quantum optics challenges uh, in terms of what kind of Hamiltonian you can engineer, how you can leverage more complex Hamiltonians to um, uh, require even fewer qubits, um, to how do you uh, densify your interconnects and manage the heat flow uh, due to the cables in your fridges, um, up to math uh, and information theory challenges on how to design better error correcting codes. So, got a recent breakthrough in a so-called low-density parity check, which is a more advanced error correction scheme. Um, and, and so there is still, again, a lot of room on every aspect uh, to, to, to improve and make this happen even earlier than expected. So you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, sort of the kind of long-term goals. You know, what are your very, very... Um immediate next steps over the next couple of years before you get to this 2026 milestone where you've got as a 14 cat qubits working yeah so the the, the milestones for us are, are really uh, about demonstrating uh, first um, error detection error correction so that it constitutes a proper logical qubit then gates on the logical qubits that show that we can manipulate this abstract device um, and um, so, so they're really about uh, still very much R&D at this point. And, uh, and in some sense, Alice and Bob is, uh, while being a private company, we're, we're somewhat uh, akin to an academic lab, just, um, just a, a sort of large and very driven and aligned one uh, instead, of the, instead of the usual uh, herd of cats that an academic lab can be. Um, so hurting cats, but in a better fashion. That's that's interesting. We had an article in Physics World recently that looked into you know why why are people willing to pay for quantum computers when they don't don't necessarily exist yet, and certainly not in their final form. Is that something you've struggled with as a company to get people to invest? So no, not not really um, in terms of struggling to to get funding, but. What, what we started doing recently, uh, I mean, six or nine months ago, is we started advising large industrial players in how to shape up their quantum strategy. And the question is, well, uh, how, how is this coherent? You, on one hand, we say uh, there is only you know, long-term, high-impact algorithm can come, if you're very optimistic, as soon as 27, but still a uh, long way down the road. And on the other hand, you start um, advising clients into investing in quantum uh, for their businesses early on. And the reason is that if you're, let's say, uh, an automotive player um, and, um, and you start considering the use cases in battery design and novel material science, then you start pondering um, if, if the cost of being too early is not completely negligible compared to the cost of being too late in quantum. Because it's a new way of designing algorithm, uh, and there is definitely a lot of impact for first movers. I mean, as soon as the hardware is ready, some researchers will start designing novel materials, things like that. 
uh, and secure IP and lock out external players. Um, so this is why they're very interested in, in understanding, putting actual numbers, deciphering the, the hype. There is a lot of noise uh, in the industry and it's hard to, uh, to understand what the numbers means actually and, um, and try to focus on uh, promising use cases and not spread in, in too many use cases throughout the organization like some have been doing previously with AI. Well, Theo Peronen, thank you very much and best of luck to Alice and Bob as you work to achieve your milestones. Thank you very much, Margaret. That was Teo Perrinet of Alice and Bob in conversation with Physics World's Margaret Harris. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Teo and Margaret for joining me today, as well as Martin Freer and Michael Banks. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester is in conversation with the American author Kai Bird, who co-wrote the biography of Robert Oppenheimer that inspired this year's blockbuster film. Bird talks about his fascination with how political power is won and lost in a democracy. And he also explains how Oppenheimer's downfall sent a chill through the American scientific community that is still felt today. That episode is called The Biographer Who Inspired Christopher Nolan's Blockbuster Film, Oppenheimer. And you can find it on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.